Sounds like you know, good positive statement. Um, then I put a post up late last night and turned against a little bit, but it's uh, And I put a post up last night, and I just created two fictitious doctors. Uh, one was a, a doctor that had graduated and taught at Harvard Medical, the, the number one medical school in the country. The other one was uh, a graduate, a young guy, good-looking guy, good-looking picture there, of a, a young guy that had graduated from, you know, a very marginal a marginal uh, medical school. Uh, the older guy was a teaching professor, had great credentials and all these things. The younger guy, uh, pretty much straight through, but uh, you know, he went to kind of a sub-Saharan desert uh, area in Africa and was helping a lot of people with you know, immunizations and setting broken bones and all these things. And that's the, the scenario that I developed played out. You know, you, whoever that person was, you developed something and went in for tests and found out that it was a malignancy in the brain and it was very rare, and there were very few people that were even qualified to, to certainly do that. Well, the, the young doctor that had gone and devoted his life to helping people in, in need uh, really had a tremendous bedside manner. He was a guy that always held your hand, always there for you, a good friend that you talked to, really a relational guy. The other guy, stodgy old guy, but he knew his stuff. And the question I asked, I said, which one of those guys would you choose if you, only had, if you had to make that decision because it had to be done, by, by, by somebody within 24 hours, who would you choose? And, you know, the, the, the stodgy guy from, from Harvard that knew his stuff uh, but didn't have any bedside manner was Dr. Clark, and the other one was really nice, good-looking young guy who helped a lot of people, Dr. Grayson. And it, it was interesting kind of the feedback that I got on a question like that. You know, some people said, absolutely, Dr. Grayson, because, you know, his bedside manner, at least I knew he cared about me. Uh, I, I don't know about you folks, but... Um, I know you care about me, but if it came down to you operating on my brain, there's not a single one of you I'd look inside of my head. <laughs> no offense, you know, period. Uh, some of you guys aren't too, you know, Caleb could probably get by with changing the oil, but he's, he's never going to take the top end off of my, uh, my pickup and change my head gaskets. He's just not going to do that. Uh, I'll trust him for a little bit, but definitely not something that intricate. Uh, some people obviously said Dr. Clark because he, he knew his, his, his business. But you know what, in reality, if it came right down to it, and you sat there in consultation with both of those, most people would say, Dr. Clark, you know what? Uh, you're probably never going to be my friend. You're probably never going to sit down and drink coffee with me or send me a Christmas card. But uh, you can probably save my life. And you know, at the end of the day, regardless of how sweet and how nice someone is, we need something that's going to save our lives. And I, I asked a, kind of a follow-up question in regards to evangelism today as well. And I said, who do you find it more difficult to minister to or preach the gospel to, is it friends and close family or total strangers? More difficult. Most people almost, with, with very few exceptions, they said it's more difficult for them to share the truth and to really confront sin with family and close relationships. And I said that's interesting because, you know, in our line of ministry, you know, most of the people we meet, we don't have time to build a relationship with. And so the people that have a, a tendency to kind of uh, disregard or have a problem with our ministry is those that say, listen, I'm more into relationship ministry. But by virtue of that poll, it showed that the least effective form of ministry for most people is relationship ministry. That the greater the relationship, the less they minister. But people are aiming towards relationship ministry, I guess so that they'll feel uncomfortable in ministry to people and never will. You see how upside down things get sometimes? That we like somebody to, to like us, uh, but really would we want them our life in their hands? Uh, we have relationship with people, 
But at the end of the day, we never say anything to them, and we call that a relationship. But still, yet we don't minister to strangers in many cases in the church at large. But just some, some, some kind of some things that I was pondering as I think about really the condition of the church, and really it's such a strategic hour that I believe. And folks, listen, I think at the end of the day, it's still the truth that makes men free. As much as I want to have relationships with people, sometimes I only have a 90-second window of opportunity to make a decision on what I'm going to say in somebody's life. And it, it can't be something flesh-based. It's got to be something truth-based that hopefully it's going to put a hook inside of their heart and life that's going to change and transform them for eternity. So I really encourage every one of you and you that are maybe watching on, on Facebook to kind of, kind of evaluate really your your directive and kind of the, the principles that you utilize in regards to, to sharing the faith and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and really what's going to save people's lives. Do you want somebody that's nice, which is nice, you know, I like nice people, or do you want the truth that's going to make people free and change and transform lives? I believe that you can have both to a certain degree, but if it comes down to relationship over life, I'm going to choose life even over relationship. Amen? Um, Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for today. Thank you for what you're doing, Lord God. Once again, we thank you for what's happening, uh, Lord God, in Darren's life. He's on his way to, uh, to to Alabama to get really, I believe, discipled and his life changed and transformed. And Lord God, all the others. Lord God, the, 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 the young man that I ministered to today on the streets as well. But Lord God, he just saw his family falling apart, but he really desires to, to serve you. And the others that, uh, that folks ministered to, the guy that showed up last night at the Bible study at the Raven's Nest. Lord God, you should be a minister. Lord God, Father, you see the hurt in all of these people's lives. And they're looking for life, Lord God. They're looking for truth. They're looking for hope. They're, they're looking for freedom, Lord God. So, Father, we pray, Lord God, that you just touch our hearts, Lord God. Just make us uh, a vehicle and conduit, Lord God, to draw people to you, Lord Jesus. And we just ask, Lord God, that you just check us, Lord God. Check our hearts. Check our minds, our motives, Lord God. And just cause us, Lord God, to just be very deliberate, Lord God. Just let us... Lord God, be those people that are just constantly, Lord God, pressing, Lord God, towards you, towards that mark of the prize of the high calling of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And Lord God, we ask you to bless this teaching tonight. Lord God, just open our hearts and our minds. Lord God, we just want to go deeper in your word. We need that foundation. Lord God, we need the footing. Lord God, the foundation being built upon. Lord God, we need all of those things interwoven into our hearts and minds. Lord God, especially in this day and age. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen and amen. Uh, folks, the last time in our examination of Galatians, uh, we were at chapters... Uh, we looked at uh, chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. It, and really what we did is we took note of how Paul, you know, even when he was addressing the gross error uh, that was associated with those deceptive teachings that had brought, been brought into the church of Galatia uh, through the Judaizers, you know, he continued to walk alongside them. You know, even though they were in error, he walked alongside them. And he was really imploring them to come back. And, and really he desired for them to repent and believe the true gospel. It, it, it wasn't in a case that he was just wanting to blow them up. It wasn't that he was just wanting to, to, to rebuke them or correct them just for the sake of, of rebuking them or correcting them, but he really desired to bring them back. The Word tells us that open rebuke is better than secret love. You know, Paul could have sat back, I guess, many times and said, you know what, hopefully it's going to work itself out. It's all going to pan out, and you know what, uh, uh, whatever God wants is going to happen. But he was a vehicle that God was using to bring correction into that church. And if we've seen some of the things that he said, he had to be very very deliberate, very strategic, and sometimes it really had to cut to the heart of the people. But I want us to, to look tonight at Galatians chapter 3, and I'm going to turn to look at verse 15, and I'm going to read down through verse 22 in its entirety. Then we're going to kind of dive in verse by verse for just a little bit, but I think you need to kind of look at it within that context today. And really talking about the law uh, versus God's promises. So, dear brothers and sisters, 
He said, here's the example from everyday life. Uh, just as you know, no one can set aside or amend an irrevocable agreement, so it is also the case with God. God gave the promises uh, to Abraham and his child. And notice that the scripture doesn't say to his children, as if it meant many descendants. Rather, it says to his child, and that, of course, means Christ Jesus. This is what I'm trying to say. The agreement God made with Abraham could not be canceled 430 years later when God gave the law to Moses. God would be breaking his promise, for if the inheritance could come by, uh, uh, could be received by keeping the law, then it would not be the result of accepting God's promise, but God graciously gave it to Abraham as a promise. Verse 19, why then was the law given? Well, it was given alongside the promise to show people their sins, but the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. God gave his law through an angel to Moses who was the mediator between God and his people. Now, a mediator is helpful if more than one party must reach an agreement. But God, who is one, did not use a mediator when he gave the promise to Abraham. that. When he gave the law, he used a mediator. But when he gave the promise, he didn't use a mediator. Is this a conflict then between God's law and God's promise? Absolutely not. If the law could give us new life, we would be made right with God by obeying it. But the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin, so we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. So back to verse 15, just for a minute. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, here's an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or amend an irrevocable agreement, so is this the case, uh, talking about the, the promise that he made with Abraham. And so what we see, guys, is, a, is, is the Apostle Paul utilizing, once again, the example just from something very common, uh, an agreement that's, the, we call it a covenant in the case of a promise with God. And he was showing that God had made a binding agreement with Abraham. Folks, for me, that, that gives me really a case to rejoice here and now. He made an agreement that, that was bound in a covenant with Abraham before the cross. You know, how much more can I rely upon that covenant promise that he's made me with the merit of the cross of Calvary and Jesus Christ, the, not only just the Son of God, but the Son of Man, the second Adam. He came to ratify that through a time that we celebrate now, if you're, if you're watching it currently, through this period we call the, 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 the Passion Week, or, where Christ was crucified and rose again on the third day. He ratified that promise. And so if he held that promise so dear and, and so concise and so true before that, they just think about how much he has it now. And I'm always drawn back to Romans chapter 8 when he talks about there's not any condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And folks, you know how we're in Christ Jesus? We're in Christ Jesus through promise. We walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And he goes on to say that the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. If there's ever been anything that, that liberated me and gave me a freedom to serve Jesus, it was the revelation of that right there, that Romans 8 uh, principle, that I didn't have to walk in condemnation. Certainly, man, there's times that I need God, and God does convict me. But conviction's always pushing me towards Him and His promise. Con uh, condemnation was always bringing me back to myself and back to whether or not I was able to keep the law. And folks, listen, the natural, the carnal man is not subject to the law. Neither indeed can he be. Oh, we're powerless to fulfill all the requirements of the law. That's why Jesus Christ had to come in the form of sinful flesh and for sin and to make himself that substitute for us at the cross of Calvary. So we don't walk in that condemnation. We see before the cross what happened in, in John, that God loved the world. He loved his creation the way he created it so much that he sent his son to die. Then he goes on to say in verse 19, obviously, that this is the condemnation, that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds 
were evil. Now, folks, let's pause that for just a second. That gospel wasn't written to the Gentile nations or the heathen. That gospel was written to Jewish observers. But he said they loved darkness rather than light. Folks, you take the Corinthian letter, and it says, Now we can see through the glass darkly, but when that which is perfect has come Jesus, then that which is done in part shall be done away with. Folks, listen, the, the law was just a shadow. It was dark. There was no light under the law. But when Jesus Christ came, and he became, according to John 1, he became the light of men. He was the light that came into the world. That men love darkness. Men would rather have the law that they can control rather than the light who they must yield to and serve. That's what they did. They loved darkness. They would rather have something that they could say, here's all the P's and Q's, and miss the relationship with God through just a willful submission to His Son, Jesus. Folks, that's exactly what happened. And folks, that's where condemnation and conviction come in as well. So there was agreement that promise was established upon faith and could not and would not be altered or amended. All it could be was fulfilled. And so God made a promise. It couldn't be altered. It couldn't be amended. It wasn't going to be changed. Nothing was going to deviate. The only possible outcome for the promise that God gave was for that promise to be fulfilled. You get that? Now, folks, sometimes we can make a promise. Somebody, do you promise? Do you promise? How many times has somebody told you they're going to do something, and you, you said, do you promise? And, and they said, yeah, I really promise. You, well, do you, do you really promise? Yeah, I really promise. You pinky promise. Or whatever the promise is, you promise, 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 promise. You, you, you promise on your mother's grave. Or you promise on some. You know, people do that. Folks, listen, God doesn't have to do that. God ratified his promise first by his word, and he demonstrated that ratification of that promise by sending his son Jesus in that form of sinful flesh to die and to rise again, that that promise might be demonstrated in all those that believe and receive him by faith. Folks, that's the promise that we have. And so the only outcome for anything that God says is fulfillment. And so it's not like he says, listen, here's what I'm going to do. Let's flip a coin whether or not that thing's going to come to pass. If God says something, it's going to happen. You know, it's funny, you know, people, that's, uh, sometimes they want to speak on behalf of God. And, uh, you know, I think about years back, I have people when I was in Texas pastoring, we'd go out to eat sometime afterwards, and it was kind of a, a smaller community than this. And a lot of times we'd go to the same restaurants many times, and people come up to you, and they, give you, they want to give you a word. They knew you were a preacher, they knew something. Oh, brother, I got a word for you, I got a word for you. And it's like, well, take a shot at it. What do you got? Well, they tell you something. And afterwards, they say, well, listen, behold, thus saith the Lord. And they give you this word, and you bear witness to that. So they follow up. What do you mean, do I bear witness to that? You said, thus saith the Lord. Do I need to bear witness to it? And I use the answer, well, listen, it doesn't matter if I bear witness to it or not, because if it's God, it's going to come to pass, because it's his promise. If it's not, your blood be upon your own head. And seldom did I ever get another word from that person. Why, well, folks, because, listen, if God says something... We don't have to, to take a poll. We don't have to take a vote. We don't have to see who's in agreement or who's not in agreement with it. We don't have to see who bears witness to it. If God gives a promise, if God gives the word, all you do have to, have to do is camp out there and watch it happen because it's going to happen. But we live in a day and age where it becomes this Russian roulette of God's word. And so God gives a word. The next week things change and you have to kind of jockey around and pivot, as they say, in the, the political realm now and, and, and find another way around it and spin it to that thing. And say, well, really, God, that's what God said, but that's not really what God meant. But when God said it to Abraham, he really meant it. He really said that I'm going to bless you. He really said all these things that we, we talked about in the last two weeks. 
He really said that my promise is going to come through you and I'm going to fulfill it through this child who's ended up being Christ Jesus. He, he really meant those things. Folks, listen, I take consolation in that. I take comfort and I serve that God that does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. This is verse 16. It says, God gave that promise to Abraham and his child, or his, your King James may say his seed. But it, and it says, and notice that the scripture doesn't say to his children, as if it meant many descendants. Rather, it says to his child. And that, of course, meant Christ. Folks, listen, that word, should we get child or, or seed in your King James? What it really refers to is those that would become the offspring or the progeny of that promise. Those that would be the beneficiary of that promise and it would extend out. And so he talks about seed. Listen, there's going to be a benefit to that promise that's going to be so far-reaching. And so just as he gave that promise to Abraham, think about it. He gave that same promise in the book of Acts after the day of Pentecost as well, didn't he? What he said, he said, this promise is for who? For you and your children, for those that are as far off, for that prodigy to, to as many that would call upon his name. And so that same promise that was given to Abraham, that same promise that was revealed and ratified by the blood of Jesus was that same promise that was confirmed and demonstrated at the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost is extended to anyone that would dare call upon and believe upon the name of Jesus. So the manifestation or the realization of that promise was seen in the life of Jesus who came as a descendant of Abraham. Uh, Gospel of Matthew uh, chapter 1. I'll, I'll kind of share with you. you. You've read this when you go through. Uh, maybe you're reading through your Bible and you're, you get to Matthew and you get in that first chapter. It's got all that beget, 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 beget. You know what I'm talking about? But you kind of read through real quick. You don't think, see anything real spiritual. You know, anybody really think that going? You, you, you look at it and say, okay, let me hurry through this. All these names and all this. Uh, oh, boy. I'm not, yeah, yeah, I don't get yeah, a lot about that. Hey, Amen. Okay, let me get into the meat and the potatoes of the Gospel of Matthew. Folks, it was in there for a reason. It was in there because I needed this for our material on Galatians tonight to really affirm what he said. But I'm, I'm going to give you, he used this genealogy of, of, of Jesus. And it's interesting in the variations that you see in the gospel. He started with Abraham on this one, okay? And so here's what it says. It says, this is the record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Then verses 3 through 15 gives us all these familiar names. We get Judah, we get Boaz, we get David, we get Solomon, we get Jehoshaphat, we get Uzziah, Hezekiah, Zerubbabel. We get all the unique names that are in there that we've heard the stories. But probably chances are when we saw them in various parts of the Bible, we didn't even realize that Jesus was a descendant of them. You know, just the ones I mentioned, some of them you probably think, oh really, Hezekiah, really, Zerubbabel? That was part of the lineage of, of Abraham that, that, that reached out and Jesus became the descendant of that. Then in verses 3 through 15, 315, excuse me, yeah, 315. Uh, let's pick up on 16. Here's what he says. He said, Jacob was the father of Joseph. Here's where we get down to Jesus. The husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. And so consider this just for a second. In all the genealogy, all the way from Abraham, this child, speaking of Christ Jesus, the Messiah, you're going to see that fulfillment of that. The John 1, 9 through 13, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. It, he came to them, which was of his own. We saw that in the Gospel of Matthew. But his own did not even receive him. Yet to all who did receive them, to those that believed on his name. What's another word for believing on his name? What's it called? It's called faith. He gave the right or the power to become the children of God. To become a beneficiary of that promise 
that God gave. Children born of not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. And so even though we can't sit down somewhere and draw out this lineage and, and track our ancestry back to Abraham, because we believe, what has it done? It's adopted us into the beloved. Some of you have been, you know, you're the child of adoption. Beth, you know, she was adopted as a, as a child. You know, we have a, an adopted daughter. Some of you got adopted children and grandchildren, things of that nature. And so it's no less of a relationship. It's no less of family. Maybe you don't share the same uh, 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 uh uh, biological materials that brought those things together, but I tell you what, the heart, the covenant, the love, the responsibility, all of those things play into that, indiscriminate of anything else. And so it's the exact same thing that happened. He extended that covenant to every single one of us, and we've got the benefit. Now look at Romans 4, 16. Romans 4, 16. Turn to that real quick. It says, So the promise... So the promise, what's another word for promise? Covenant. So the promise or the covenant is received by faith. It's given as a free gift, and we are all certain to receive it, whether or not we live according to the law of Moses, if we have faith like Abraham's, for Abraham is the father who all believe. He is the originator. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. So he became righteous because of faith. And so the qualifier to become a child of the descendant of Abraham then was not in keeping the law, but rather in what? Keeping the faith. When the Son of God returns, will he find the law? Will he find what? Will he find faith on the earth? And so when Christ Jesus is coming back, he's not going to find if we have our prayer cloths on. He's not going to find to see if we're burning a menorah in the window. He's not going to see any of those things. He's going to look and see what's burning in the hearts of men if truly we're walking and built upon the foundations of faith. And so you can keep the law still and still depart from the faith and miss out on the eternal promises of God. Paul the Apostle was a classic example of that. He, he mentioned who he was under the law. A Pharisee of Pharisees, circumcised on the right day and belonging to the right tribe and doing the right things and all those things. But he still at the end of the day had to say, oh, wretched man. That I am. I kept the law. Look at what we talked about uh, this past week, talking about the, 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 the rich young ruler. I kept all those things. But there's one thing I want you to do. I want you to get rid of those things that really are important to you. Come and follow me. He walked away sorrowful. But I kept the law. I did all of these things. Folks, listen, you can keep the law and not walk by faith. You can just do those things. So, folks, listen. But you can't walk by faith and not obey the things of God. You hear what I'm saying? And I'm not talking about obeying the, the, the 615 laws. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about obeying the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus that makes me free from the law of sin and death. Hebrews 11.6. You know this really well. But without faith, it's impossible to please him. He that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So without faith, without an adherence to the law? No, without faith, it's impossible to please Him. So without faith, the faith that existed before the law, no one could ever expect to be into a pleasing relationship with God. So the question is, what is it that pleases God? What is it about faith that pleases God? You ever stop to think that? Okay, without faith, it's impossible to please Him. So why is faith so pleasing to God? Is that a good question or what? Why does faith please God? 
I'm not going to answer that for you right now. I'm going to give you that to ponder. We'll go back to that here just in a little bit. Verse 17, Paul once again saying, he said, this is what I'm trying to say, that the agreement God made with Abraham could not be canceled 430 years later when God gave the law to Moses. God would be breaking his promise. And so, folks, listen, those then and, and those now that would somehow attempt to lure people back into this law-based salvation or, 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 or law-based relationship, whatever they want to call it, Paul made it quite clear that to do so would make God a liar, right? Is it possible for God to be a liar? It's not, it's not possible. And so for to lure somebody back into that place and to say it was necessary, the Word of God, not me, it says God would be breaking His promise right there in Galatians 3.17. They require that. But 2 Corinthians 1.20 says this. It says, For all of the promises of God are in Him, yes, and in Him, amen, to the glory of God by us. And so what are God's promises? They're yes and they're amen. I, I like how it puts it in the BSB version. You know, that is Korean study Bible. It's not a real common one, but it actually is a Bible. It says, for all the promises of God are yes in Christ. And so through Christ, our amen is spoken to the glory of God. And so any fulfillment of promise is always going to come through Jesus Christ. There's no fulfillment of any promise that God makes to any one of us that comes from any source but through faith in the finished work of what Christ Jesus has done for every single one of us. So verse 18, here's what he says. He says, for if the inheritance could somehow be received by keeping the law, then it would not be the result of accepting God's promise, but God graciously gave it to Abraham as a promise. And so Paul the Apostle, once again, talked about him using human terms in regards to a business agreement, and he was explaining that God's plan of salvation through faith and, and, but he also gave another human example of inheritance. Now, in this room, chances are, none of us, are, I'm looking around making sure, none of us are waiting for our, our multi-millionaire uncle to pass away, but hopefully we're written into that inheritance. Anybody here, if, if, if you are Caleb, good, good for you. But listen, but we have an inheritance in Christ Jesus. So, you know, for me, you know, my mother passed away last year, my, my dad getting up in age. One day I'll, I'll bury him as, as well. And you know what? There'll probably be an inheritance or something. It might be that old 1978 Chevy man in his barn out back that none of the other boys would want or, or something else. But it's, you know, obviously it's not going to be, you know, some, some, some fantastic, uh, you know, amount of money or anything because he's not that type of guy and doesn't have those type of resources. But nonetheless, there's an inheritance that, that will be a part of that and they'll be probated. So Paul the Apostle is using something that's very common to every single one of us. And so he's using those human terms. And so when he's talking about an inheritance, it's a term used to describe that which is provided for those which are your descendants or family members. Those having a relationship with you, either through birth or legal adoption, but inheritance does not come through doing, it comes through being. And so the inheritance is because of who I am in relationship to my father. It's not what I've done, because I'm his child regardless of what I've done or what I've not done. There's an inheritance associated with that. And so when, when he's giving those promises to us, he said, listen, your inheritance is not based upon you jumping through the right hoops. Your, jump, your, your inheritance is you having the right basis for a relationship with me. And so let me give you an example of inheritance. Say you go out and you get your hair done uh, so that you look like Ivanka Trump. Say you didn't choose red and you chose to, to go blonde. You know, and you, you know, she still, I guess she has like a clothing line or something like that, right? Uh, and so, so Courtney goes out, dyes her hair blonde, 
and she goes and buys all of the Ivanka Trump stuff, and she very well probably has some type of perfume with her name on it or whatever, and you spread that stuff all over you, do you think Donald Trump, President Trump, is going to say, oh, look, she, she mimicked Ivanka, so she's now an heir. And you're going to go and you're going to move into Trump Tower, and you're going to visit the, 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 the White House unimpeded by Secret Service. you think it's going to happen to you? Why not? you got the right hair. you got the right perfume. You're carrying the right handbag and all those other things that say Ivanka on them. Well, no, what you're trying to do is qualify yourself for something that doesn't belong to you. Folks, listen, when we try to go back to the law, what we've done is somehow try to qualify ourselves for a promise of Abraham by keeping the law and, and not actually having God revealed to us so we become imposters. And so, folks, listen, you can't become an imposter and expect some type of, 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 of become an heir. It's the same thing with our relationship with God. We can't say, listen, let me go do all of these things that Ivanka did. Let me do all these things that they required under the shadow of the darkness of the law and somehow expect to get an inheritance. Our inheritance was provided for us through faith in the finished work of the cross of Calvary. And so what the law provided uh, for the Judaizers trying to lure the Jews, uh, uh, Jews back in was strictly a means of self-righteousness. And so when I say I'm going to do something that's going to qualify me, Basically, it's self-righteousness. Now, folks, listen. I can imagine what it looked like then. Because most of the people that were Judaizers that we're talking about in Galatians were those that had been brought up in the faith. I can imagine what it was like then. Where you had these, these people that were raised in, 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 in that very, very, uh, uh, obviously, staunch Judaism in Jerusalem. Not the, the outside that had been uh, affected by other cultures and things of that nature. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about the Jews of Jerusalem. That were now coming into Galatia and, and, and laying down these, 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 these laws and this uh, legalism trying to subvert Christianity. I'm sure it was heavy. You know why? Because I know people today that weren't even born Jews, that weren't raised in that culture, that didn't grow up eating kosher. They grew up eating you know, chicharrones just like me and pork rinds and, and, and hot dogs and everything else. Then all of a sudden they got this great revelation of the law and now they're suddenly holy and righteous. I, I, I know how self-righteous they can be. Right? Because they shop at the right restaurant and, 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 and they bow the right times and eat the right feast and blow the right trumpets. I don't know how self-righteous they can be. But can you imagine how bad it would have been back then? When you got these people that they hung their hat on that nail of Judaism and all of a sudden somebody drove that nail into the wall and they didn't have a place to hang it on any longer? That was the situation that they were faced in. Because their whole identity was designed by what they did. And folks, you can see, they'll try to put the hammer in and pull the nail out to justify a place to hang their hat of self-righteousness. Folks, any of us that think that we have anything apart from faith and humility in the finished work of the cross of Calvary, folks, what we're doing is we're just dri driving a nail into the wall ourselves and trying to hang our hat on. Look what I did. Well, I witnessed, so I'm more righteous. Or I, I, I helped the guy, I'm more righteous. Or I, I, we, we fed the homeless out there. We don't do those things to build a relationship with God. We do those things because we have a relationship with God. We don't do those things because we're sitting around thinking, oh, what, God's going to get us unless we go out and, and, and make some sandwiches for a homeless guy. Or, or God's going to get us unless we, uh, we, we, we inconvenience ourselves and, and drive a guy to a, a, a rehab in Alabama. Folks, we're not doing that for brownie points. We're doing that because God loved us, and we can't help but do it. Period. And you know what? If we were in a circumstance where we couldn't do it, God would still love us the exact same. Period. If we were under a circumstance or we were somewhere secluded and we didn't have the benefit of those things, listen, it doesn't change anything. 
But folks, this is where we have the power to do it. To those that know to be right, it can be right. You know, and don't do it because then it's obviously sin. We we have the capacity to do those things, so we operate in obedience according to those things. But folks, listen, that doesn't create righteousness for us. The only righteousness that we ever got and we will ever get is through faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross of Calvary. Period. Anything else that we do that's demonstrating our life is a is, is revealing to other people our understanding of that righteousness that God has. God made me righteous, and so I'm going to go witness. Jesus made me righteous, so I'm going to give to those that are in need. Jesus made me righteous, so I'm going to pray. I'm going to, I'm going to read the Word. Jesus made me righteous, so I'm going to do those things because I want to do those things because they're, they're the outflow of the relationship that exists inside of my heart and life. They're not the things that are my checklist every single day that somehow I can get God to know me and to love me. Uh, can I give you a, a side note on, on just the issue of, of self-righteousness, too, if you've thought about this? You know, self-righteousness can also be manifested in false humility or believing that your old nature is more powerful than the Spirit of God inside of you. You know, self-righteousness doesn't have to be this bombastic, gregarious, in-your-face type of boasting thing. It can also demonstrate itself in a false humility that's really not humility at all. It just realizes that that's a way to put a hook in people. And it also can be manifested in people to say, and you've had this conversation many times, I know, listen, I'm just a poor old sinner saved by grace. And that may be the single most self-righteous statement I've ever heard. Period. I'm just an old sinner saved by grace. Well, you're still walking in your own righteousness then, which is self-righteousness. Well, I'm a new creature. Here's what the righteousness that based upon faith in what Jesus did. If anyone's in Christ, he's not just an old sinner saved by grace. He's a new creation. Behold, old things are passed away and everything has became new. So I'm no longer bound by sin. I'm no longer identified with that old nature. I'm no longer a slave to those things. I'm no longer under the power of sin and death, which I was under self-righteousness. Even the dressed up religious version of self-righteousness, that's all I was. I was walking in false humility, but when I come to Christ Jesus, man, there's a confidence and assurance because I put my faith in what Jesus did, not in what Troy Bond did or didn't do. And so my righteousness in Christ Jesus is built upon that promise and upon that foundation. Self-righteousness says, listen, I can't. Well, sure you can't, because self-righteousness is like filthy rags. So you can't do it, but Christ in me has become that hope of glory. And so when you think about it, really, I can't do it, it's self-righteousness, because you're dependent upon the, the arm of your own flesh. And so when we walk in the Spirit, which is righteousness, then we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, the desires of the will, or the old nature, which is self-righteousness. So, why the law? So why was the law given? I'm glad you asked that question. Jump down to verse 19 in our text tonight, Galatians 3. The question was asked just like this. So why then was the law given? Because you just imagine, as we do, so if we didn't need it, why was it given? His audience, he knew, those folks, out on the outskirts of the, of, of, of the empire, asked the same question. Well, here's what he said. He said it was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. God gave his law through Moses, uh, to Moses, who was a mediator to God and the people. So the law of Moses' sins was given to reveal people's sin or to expose where people were transgressing the righteousness of God or violating God's will uh, or, or described order of things. So the law was given until the fulfillment to show people that they were doing wrong or violating God's will. 
Folks, listen. We talk about sin. When we're talking about sin, we're not talking about jaywalking. Okay? That's not what we're talking about. You'll probably never find jaywalking mentioned in Scripture. The, the reason I say that, when, when people talk about, listen, the, the, those who are born into God's family don't make a practice of sinning. They say, well, did you ever, you ever jaywalk? Well, probably. Well, sin, you're sinning. Folks, that's not what Sin is violating the righteousness of God. And so, uh, a doctor could say, listen, legally, they're requiring me to abort children because I get funds from the government. Well, you don't do that. Well, you're violating that because you broke the law. You see how ridiculous that is? Sin is violating the righteousness of God. The issue even came up in, in the book of Acts. What right. obey God rather than men? So were they in sin because they obey God rather than men? Or those Absolutely not. So don't get caught up in those those random bouts with people talking about, well, did you go 36 and 35? Well, see, you're walking. This. That, that's not what it's talking about. So those things are, are the laws of men, once again, that hold us in the bodies. Should you be prudent? Should you obey the law to the degree that you're, you're, you're obeying those authorities? Absolutely. Those laws were not given to bring restriction. Those laws are typically given to bring safety to people. But those laws aren't a violation of the righteousness of God. Those are precepts that are given through government agencies. So I just want to throw that in there real quick. Romans 3.20 says this, Therefore no one will be called, declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So no one's going to be called righteous by doing the law, but the law was given so we could be conscious or aware of sin. Now think about this, Hebrews 10.26, you know this word. Dear friends, if we continue sinning after we've received what? The knowledge, mark it down in your, your Bible or your mind, the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer any sacrifice that will cover those sins. What is it? There's only judgment, fiery indignation that awaits the adversary of the Lord. So he said, if we continue to sin after we receive the knowledge of the truth, once we're aware of something, we continue to sin willfully. Once God has made us aware, it says there's no sacrifice for those things. There's, there's, there, there's no going back. And so there's a there's a sin unto death, and there's a sin not unto death, as First John talks about. You, you, you've read that, you've probably wondered about that periodically. I'll just read it to you. First John uh, 13 through 21, 5, 13 through 21. Uh, John said, I have written unto you uh, to believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know, you may have eternal life. And we are confident that he hears us when we ever ask anything from him you know, that pleases him. And since we know he hears us when we make our request, we also know that he will give us what we ask for. In verse 16 of First John 5, he says, if you see a Christian brother... Or sisters sinning in a way that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give that person life. But there is a, uh, but there is a sin that leads to death, and I'm not saying that you should pray for those who commit it. Because all wicked actions are sin, but not every sin leads to death. We know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning, for God's Son holds them securely, and the evil one cannot touch them. We know that we are the children of God, and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come, and he has given us understanding, understanding, back to Hebrews 10, 26, knowledge of the truth, so that we can know the true God, and now we live in fellowship with the true God because we live in fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ, and he is the only one true God, eternal life. Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your heart. And so when he's talking about the sin of the death versus the sin out of the death, the sin of the death is willfully sinning. It's that I'm sinning with knowledge. I know that it's a sin. The sin not in the death is the sin that I commit that I'm not even aware of. Period. And so he says, listen, if I'm willfully sinning, there's not a sacrifice that leads to death. That's where it has a wage. Folks, listen, the place where mercy finds itself, where God's grace is, the sufficiency of grace, 
It's those transgressions that I'm making against the righteousness of God that maybe through ignorance or immaturity or whatever else that I don't even realize. Yet, there's still sin. All sin, he said, is wicked, but there's a sin that leads to death. There's a sin that will, that will kill your testimony, that will kill your, your relationship with God, that will kill everything around you. But there's those ones that will definitely bring chastisement to you, and God will correct you and bring you to the knowledge of that. Then, if you sin with that knowledge, then there's no sacrifice even for you. So we can't say that ignorance is bliss, and I was going to say stupid. That way, I can always have these sins that may be wicked, but they're not of the dead. Folks, listen, that's the maturation process. Folks, listen, there's things, me at 50 years old preaching the gospel, that I consider sin in my, that I consider sin in my life now, that probably 30 years ago, I would, it would never register on the ship. I never saw it. I would, I would have never thought about it because it wasn't those biggies. It wasn't the smoking, the drinking, the cursing, the sexual immorality or whatever. It wasn't those things. But as God brings you closer, there's things that now would probably be a sin unto death for me that weren't a sin unto death for me 30 years ago. You see what I'm saying? And so as we mature in those things, God gives us knowledge of sin. Then he begins to bring us to a place where we can say no to those things. He empowers us. And really the key to that in, in, in the issue of the law is found also in Hebrews chapter 6, 1 through 6. And I know you've read this before. Maybe you've wondered what this was talking about. Once again, the, the author, I, I tend to, to, to lean towards Paul the Apostle writing this as well. Uh, but regardless, I believe it's the Word of God. He says, therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrines of Christ. I'm going to stop there. Leaving the principles. That word literally in the Greek talks about the beginning. The, the, the foundation. That thing which kind of the, the, where it originated. And so what he's saying, let's go back all the things that built the doctrines of Christ. Folks, listen. When do you think the doctrines of Christ started? When do you think they started? All the way up the garden. And so uh, people say, well, the doctrine of Christ, when it started in the King James Bible, no, Matthew 1 and 1. Folks, listen, they, didn't, they started all the way back in the garden. I mean, uh, what he began to, to reveal to them from the sacrifice and all of those things that he did, the promise that he gave uh, concerning the, the offspring of the, of the woman that's going to crush the serpent's head. All those things, that was, that was the doctrines of Christ beginning. So he says, listen, let's, let's get away from the beginning. And the beginning would also include the law. Because if you don't think the law was a, a type and shadow of Christ, you don't understand the law. You've never studied the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a physical representation of who Jesus would be. I mean, you see, everything about the, the tabernacle was a picture of the cross, and a picture of redemption, a, a picture of who Christ was. Right to the veil, where it talks about the veil was torn. That The veil, that is his flesh, as Hebrews calls it. And so we see those pictures develop through that. And so he said, I want you to leave all of those things from the beginning, the doctrine of Christ, and let us go on to perfection. So those things were the beginning. Those things were shadowy. But now we're going to move on to perfection, not laying again those foundations of repentance from dead works and faith towards God or the doctrine of baptism. When do you think baptisms was introduced? Do you think that's a New Testament concept? No, it was, it was uh, the baptism of Moses was when it was uh, originally introduced. And so don't you think that? Lay on hand the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. And he said, this I will do, God permit. And he says in verse 4, for it's impossible for those who were once enlightened, those that have come to the knowledge of the truth, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit. In other words, those that have had that revelation, those that have an understanding, those that if they sin, they're sinning with knowledge, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the world to come, they've got a revelation even of eternity, if they shall fall away to renew them again into repentance, seeing that they crucified themselves, the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. Now, folks, we're not talking about people that, 
that backslide and we can't bring them back. What he was talking about is the exact situation that Paul was dealing with with these people in Galatia. Listen, the, the Hebrew letter was written to Jews who were under all this heat from both the Romans and from the, 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 the devout Jews. Here you had these Jewish people. The early church was all Jews. Okay, that's 99% Jews. People got saved on the day of Pentecost. They were Jews. And so what they found themselves, they were like a people with no homeland. All of a sudden, that, this, this world was not their home. And so the, the Roman people saw them as they're the followers of this sect that was following this Jesus that we put to death. And the Jews were seen as these, these heretics, and they were the followers of this guy that claimed to be God. And so here they are caught between a rock and a hard place. And so many of them began to go back and say, hey, listen, we're still going to believe in the Messiah. But just to keep the peace and, and so we can kind of still do business and not be persecuted, we're going to still go back and we're going to offer the sacrifice and we're going to do all those things as a good Jew would do. Uh, and we're going to consider that, you know, just kind of a compromise. Well, Paul, the apostle, listen, you've already tasted the goodness. So you're going to go back and do those things. There's no longer a sacrifice for your sins. You can't do that. What you've done is every time you go and you participate in those things as now a Judaizer yourself, what you're doing is you're crucifying Jesus Christ over and again. Those things were types and shadows. They were settled and they were finished at the cross of Calvary. Now I'm not asking you to go kill another lamb. I'm not asking you to, to take uh, more blood on the, 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 the mercy seat on the day of atonement. That's just finished. It was done. And so he's addressing just that exact same uh, issue with the Hebrews as he had to address with those that are in Galatia. Listen, you're trying to crucify and put him to an open shame by your actions. So back to our, our text in Galatians 3 verse 19. Why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sin. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. God gave this law through Moses uh, uh, to Moses who was a mediator between God and the people. So two things notice at this point. Number one, the promise was directly given to God given to man through God, but the law required a mediator who was obviously Moses. Folks, here's the deal. The law, in a sense, served kind of like a telescope. And here's what I mean by that. It provides a lens for you to get a glimpse of something that, that, that you can't actually experience firsthand. Okay, That's what the law did. And so you might see things from a distance, but you'll never grasp the details that you would get from a personal experience. And so that's what the law did. The law provided a telescope. It provided a, a, a tunnel vision into something that God desired for people to get. And so men looked at, the, looked at the moon, right? Did men look at the moon before they walked on the moon? Sure they did. They could see it through a telescope. They could see it. And so they had the desire to walk on the moon. And so the looking could never satisfy the longing or, 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 the, uh, or those for those willing to take the risk or, or to lay down their lives. And so that's the same thing with the, the, the looking, the looking into the law, the, the perfect law of liberty as Christ Jesus came to fulfill that. And so when men would look through that law, it was a telescope that created a tunnel vision to a promise out there. And all these other things, they lacked the experience of that relationship. And so the telescope created a passion for man to, what did it say in Star Trek, to go, boldly go where no man has gone before. And so it created a desire for man to actually achieve what he could never experience through the types and shadows of the law. It did. It showed him a glimpse. Man, there's, I'm hearing about the Shekinah glory. I'm getting a glimpse into who God is through the, the, the pillar of fire by night. I'm, I'm getting a glimpse who God is through the pillar of cloud by day. It's just a glimpse. I'm hearing those things. We're seeing the miracles. Well, all of those things done under the law, the sacrifices, we're just looking through a telescope without ever actually experiencing it. And so we can stand on this rock 
We can stand on planet Earth. We can look skyward and we convince ourselves that this is it, that we've arrived. And, 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 but the very second that I look up and I, and I behold the sun, I've got to realize that you know, there's more to it than I've experienced. And I'm just a speck in the, this minuscule person in the vastness of space. And so it's the same thing with the law. Yeah, I can look at the law, but really when I look beyond the law, man, I've got to tell myself and I've got to be honest with myself that there's got to be more to a relationship with God by just keeping the right days and wearing the right clothes and doing the right things. God has got to be bigger than something that I'm in control of. But see, that's where they lost it. That's where the Judaizers lost it, and they began to introduce that into that church. And so the telescope will provide me with desire and direction, uh, but it will also leave me openly with desperation because it tells me that really I can see it far off, but it's impossible for me to ever get there. Folks, there's nothing more disheartening than to want to go somewhere and know you can never get there. But think, listen, it's so out of reach. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a friendship. Maybe it was some achievement in education. Something that, man, I really want that. I'm seeing it. I see the benefits of it. But I understand that there is no way on earth that it's ever going to happen. So that, in a sense, was what the law was for. It gave them the look, but it never could provide them with the life. And so you'll see people, even to this day, that get the look based upon the law, but they'll never get the life. And there's, because there's no life in it. So think about it in these terms. Uh, 56 years ago, next month, May 25th, 1961. Anybody have any idea what happened May 25th, 1961? Not a single one of us in this room were alive then. I wasn't born until 1967, so don't even point at me and say, tell me what you were watching on the news that day. I wasn't, I wasn't even born then. 56 years ago, next month, uh, President John F. Kennedy made the promise that by the end of the decade, what? That we would put a man on the moon. In July 20th, 1969, guess what happened? Neil Armstrong, Michael Collins, Edward Buzz uh, Aldrin all realized that promise and they walked on the moon. Made a promise, right? I promised that within the end of the decade, I think he actually originally said 1967 in his notes and they changed his speech and he gave himself a little bit of leeway in that. And so in 1969, they walked on the moon. But what happened between the time that promise was made until the promise was realized? What do you think happened? He made this bold statement based upon the space race that was created uh, against the, the, the Soviet Union. But what do you think happened between the time of the promise and the time it was realized? Well, a plan had to be given wherein man would see the necessity of a way to get to the promise and where life support would be provided to the vacuum of space. But how would they bridge the gap? How would they close that distance? Can you imagine everything? Maybe you've seen, what was the Apollo movie, Apollo? Apollo 13, these movies that were that were produced, you see all the, the, the intricacies and all of these things that, that happened, all the difficulties. And, and, and compared to today's technology, you wonder how they ever got off the ground because of all the, 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 the pulleys and the wires and, and the, the, the machinery and all these things. But in the same way, God made a promise that would one day, that man would one day walk with him. Obviously not on the surface of the moon, but in his, his presence like Adam did. And Adam, Abraham believed God's word. So 430 years later, the law of Moses is given to show just how far away man was and that, that man desired and demanded life support and actually to get there. Folks, that's all the law did. The law did when, when it was like it was like God giving a promise to, uh, to, to Abraham. It was like John F. Kennedy giving that promise to mankind. Listen, I'm giving you a promise. We're going to walk on the moon. He gave a promise to Abraham. You're going to walk with me again. 
But just like all of those things happened over the course of time from 1961 to 69, they saw just how impossible it would be without life support. They weren't saying, okay, let's just put a guy on an airplane and start sailing away. There had to be things that were going to keep him alive between, between point A and point B. Well, that's all the law did. The law said, listen, I'm going to hem you in. I'm going to put all of these things in place that are going to be designed really to keep you pure, to keep you right, to keep you focused on the task at hand. But folks, once we achieve that place, then no longer are we bound by those things. No longer are we bound by those laws once we're now walking with God. Romans 7, 7. Well, then I'm suggesting that the law is sinful? Of course not. It was, in fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would have never known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said you must not covet. So like the telescope, the law was designed to demonstrate the distance between God and man, not to eliminate the distance between God and man. And so when man fell, everything fell. He fell spiritually, he fell physically, he fell intellectually, he fell morally. But after the fall, man, the fall, man attempted to span that divide. Remember what he did? He wanted to build this big tower. I'm going to build a tower to, to God. You'll see that in Genesis 11 to, to reach him again. And so wanted to build a city, wanted to be like God, wanted to do all these things, but ended up being scattered. And so they wanted to obtain God's favor by adhering to the law. Folks, it's not any different than trying to reach God by building our own tower. And so we can't build our own tower, whether it's a, a religion under the law or religion not under the law. We're not going to build something that's going to bridge the gap between God. It always brings us back to that place of utter dependence upon who Jesus was and reliance upon him. And folks, listen, here's what happens. When you begin to rely upon the arm of the flesh, I guarantee, I guarantee it's no different for you than it is for me. Regardless of how that looks like, you don't feel closer to God. You feel the distance increasing. You know, but God, I'm going to do all these things in order to close the distance. And God says, listen, what you're doing is you're going the other direction. What you need to do is let me be in him we live and move and have our being, not have our doing. God, you're going to close the distance through that relationship that I have with you through faith, not through those things that I think that I'm able to do in the natural. Um, once again, Romans 8, 1 through 7, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to say, he says, to be carnally minded, this is verse 6 of chapter 8, is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is the vision or imitating God. For it's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. Folks, listen. What Jesus Christ did was he became that one that closed the distance in that telescope. That one that the law would give us all of these difficulties, tell us all these impossibilities. And he was the guy that was on the other end of the lens. And the cross of Calvary is the thing that bridged that gap that the law could never do. Folks, that was the challenge that Paul was having with the church in Galatians. All those things they wanted to do, all those covenants that they wanted to get back to, but it really came down to one. It was we're saved by grace, through faith, not of works, so that no one would ever be able to boast. But you're created under good works. You're created to do those things. You weren't doing those things in order to have that relationship with you. Father, we just thank you, Lord God, for your grace and your mercy. Father, we thank you, Lord God, that we couldn't close the distance. We didn't have the ability, Lord God, to produce the life support needed. But Lord God, you did more than that. You didn't support us in our life. Lord God, you gave us life abundantly, Lord God. You gave us the ability, Lord God, to walk with you, Lord God, in the cool of the day, every day, Lord God. In the heat of the day, every day. Through life's troubles, Lord God, every day, Lord God. Because we abide in you and you abide in us. Lord God, let your word to see deep into our hearts and minds, Lord God. Let's walk in faithfulness to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.